Good morning and welcome. Today, what a privilege to worship our God of power, our God of love. He so gloriously reveals his power to us in his creation, and he even more gloriously reveals himself to us at the cross through what Jesus has done for us. Praise him for that. Today, we're going to sing a line that says, broader than the scope of my transgressions is his love for us. Praise him for that. Because of that love, we are free to live lives dedicated to the praise of his glorious grace. And may we do that throughout the week. Let's read from Psalm 103 to start our worship today. Let's read together. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Let's stand and worship together. Rise and tempest smoke, my order from thy 
of his glorious grace, a most glorious life mission that God has given us. Ephesians 1 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, 
guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what treasure we have in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places belongs to us now. Lord, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We belong to you forever through faith in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. And Lord, you've called us to live lives dedicated to the praise of your glorious grace because we belong to you forever. But Lord, we confess that we so often do not live out of who we are in Christ. Lord, we so often forget to whom we belong and the great price that you paid to accomplish that for us. And Lord, we confess that we so often do not live to the praise of your glorious grace, but we live with ourselves at the center of our world. Father, forgive us. Lord, remind us each moment who we are in Christ. Lord, remind us each moment that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit belonging to you forever. And Lord, remind us each moment that our lives are to the praise of your glorious grace. No better mission. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship. Bigger than any mountain that I can or cannot 
Praise God. Thank you. You may be seated. I think that we all have different definitions of what joy looks like, but that looked like joy to me. Agree? I think that our Lord is big. I actually think that we forget, we struggle with fear and anxiety and all these things when we forget that our God is big. And when we forget that we are here to let the light of Jesus shine through us. Um... I would say that as a church, worship is one of our values. We believe that we are created to worship. Amen? 
But we also believe that we were created to live in community. That's why one of our most foundational values in the church is for us to be part of our community. So as you came in today, you probably saw some of the tables at the entrance. Uh, And if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Kyle saying that this fall, we are starting our groups again. There's Bible studies, small groups, life groups, all of that stuff is happening starting in fall again. Now, um, it is one thing for us to talk about community, and it's other thing to hear what community does in Witten Bible Church. And because of that, I want to I share with you this video. My name is Kathy Jones, and I am in a life group here at Wheaton Bible. I love it. Every Sunday when I come to church and every time I meet with my life group, it's like, it's like an oasis in the desert. It's like something that refreshes you and keeps you going and recharges you so that you can see through this walk in your relationship with the Lord. And I belong to the Saturday morning men's group. A Saturday morning, even though it's early, I started coming and just really started enjoying the, the fellowship, going over the teaching and then being around other believers and everybody just inputting. I mean, every signal time that I left, I just, you know, I felt charged up, obviously closer uh, to the Lord. Um, just an incredible, incredible experience. I participate in uh, our regeneration program. It's very honest, it's very open, and yet it's a place where there's not judgment because there's a recognition that we all are broken and we all need that place to heal. I did, I found God in the program, yes. Once I was there, I started learning really what the fruits of the Spirit were. You know, I felt accepted. That's when God started transforming my life, right there. Para nosotros fue muy importante llegar a un grupo en el que empezamos a conocer hermanos, porque si no, entrábamos por las puertas y salíamos por las puertas el domingo como si nadie nos conociera y nadie sabía nada de nosotros en realidad. Entonces, um, el, el estar en un grupo fue lo que comenzó para nosotros el poder empezar a conocer hermanos y, y poder recibir de ellos y nosotros también poder dar a ellos también. Cuando mi hermana estuvo hospitalizada el año pasado a punto de morir um, eh, por el COVID, estuvo en estado de coma, me llamó una hermana del eh, Grupo Vida y cuando usó estas palabras que nunca se me va a olvidar, Maritza, te estamos arropando con nuestras oraciones. Eso para mí sentía que esa palabra arropar era Dios arropándome con su fortaleza, con su favor, diciéndome que Él tiene el control de todas las cosas. La Biblia nos dice en Eclesiastes 4.12 que no es bueno que nosotros caminemos solos. Uno solo puede ser vencido, pero dos es verdad más fácil de, de resistir. A lot of people are on the fence like I, like I was, and I just, I, I took a chance. Once you get that fit, you'll look back and say, I was so glad that I made this decision. La verdad es que veo una cultura de querer crecer y aprender y centrarnos en, en el Evangelio y en la Palabra. Y, y yo creo que cuando tenemos oportunidades de hacerlo juntos es cuando de verdad podemos ayudarnos a mantenernos firmes y a verdaderamente crecer. Entonces, le animo a que lo haga. There, there are so many opportunities. There are so many opportunities to be a part of community. If you're on the fence, just jump off. Just go. Just dive. Go. Um, 
I, I don't know if you would agree with the statement that I'm about to make, but I truly believe that this is true. You cannot live your Christian life without other believers in your life. And let me make the statement even more stronger. I don't think you can survive unless you are surrounded by other believers. So if you are not part of one of our groups, and one of the beautiful things about our church is that we have all kinds of groups for all kinds of stages in lives and all kinds of needs. If you are not part, uh, part of a group, please, please, please consider joining one. Not just because we're calling you to do that, but because you need it. You won't make it unless you are surrounded by other believers. So at the end of the service, you may stop by one of the tables in the front. Uh, you could pick uh, up one of the group brochures that you find in the rack inside the worship center or at the welcome desk. You can scan the QR code uh, that is somewhere in front of you and join and click on the part that says join our community. So this is what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to join a group. I'm asking you to pray, to pray for you, to pray for your community, to pray for the next ministry year. And lastly, I want to invite you to continue to support the church financially. Why? Because it is because of your generosity that we get to do these ministries. And it is because of your generosity that we can actually pay the staff that will help us run these ministries. And it is because of your generosity that we can equip other leaders so we help us run these ministries. And it is because of your generosity that we get to give glory to God with our money. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, we, are, we come before you asking you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you make people, that you make of us people that truly believe and understand that because we are relational by nature, we need you and we need other people. Please, Lord, speak uh, to us this morning. Please confront us. Please make us part of the body. Please help us understand that we need your word, your presence, your spirit, and we need one another. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say? All right. Good morning, church. Let's take the pleasure to stand for the reading of God's word. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 10 this morning, starting at verse 16. And if you guys have your Matthew journals, that's going to be on page 50. If you guys are with me, give me a good old amen. amen. All right. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. But when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. This is the word of the Lord. You guys may be seated. All right, good morning, familia. Uh, my name is Hannibal, for those of you who don't know me, and I want to welcome you all again, whether you're worshiping with us in person or you're worshiping with us online. We are grateful that you have chosen Wheaton Bible Church to be the place where you worship uh, today. Um, as we continue with our series in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, I would like you to think of this sermon as part two of the sermon Pastor Kyle preached last week. Uh, if you didn't get the chance to listen to that sermon, I recommend you do. You could always visit our website, podcast, social media, or YouTube channel, uh, and there uh, you, will, you, will, you, you will find all of our sermons. But uh, if, you, if you didn't listen to a sermon last week, I recommend you do, because this is part of what it means, uh, what, what we heard last week is part of what it means to be a Christian living in this broken world. 
So the gist of the message is this, that as a church, we believe that the Bible calls us to be, to be out there. We are sent by Jesus into the world to love people in word and deed, right? That we don't put word before deed and we don't put deed before word, but we actually do it together because we are people of love, people of compassion, and we are extending to others what the Lord already gave us first. But the reason why I'm saying that this is going to be part two of that sermon is because as we are being sent into the world, in the text we just read, Jesus tells us what we ought to expect. What we ought to expect is we choose to love people in word and deed. What we ought to expect as we go into the world to love people in word and deed. And these are my two points for today. We're going to talk about what to expect and how to respond. Now, don't get super excited because I only have two points because I'm still going to preach my two hours that are given to me every Sunday. Not true. Hour and a half. <laughs> Let's go with point number one, what to expect. If you have been part of the church for a while, you probably heard me say, uh, said before that one of the things that I find beautiful and amazing about the Bible is how honest it is. I appreciate that the Bible is honest because it tells me that God is not in the business of tricking people into Christianity. There are no false prophets, uh, promises in the Bible. There are no hidden feasts. God tells you exactly how he is, who he is, who we are, and what he expects of us. Super honest. The passage we read today is one of those passages that is so honest that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Actually, my prayer is that we get super uncomfortable. See, at the beginning of uh, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is choosing his 12 disciples, and he gives them authority to preach the word and to perform miracles, and then he sends them out. Now, if I'm one of the disciples, and Jesus is doing that to me, I will be thrilled. See, up until this point in the story of the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen that the disciples already know that Jesus has power over evil, that he defeated the devil in the desert, that he can perform miracles, that he preaches amazing sermons, that he can say things that nobody else says, and he can do things that nobody else can do. And then Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to make you part of that. Which I've, if I'm one of the disciples, man, I will be super excited. I get to be part of what God is doing. I, if it's me in my head, I'm thinking, man, this is going to be awesome. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples just for a second. Can you imagine how powerful it would be that you speak to evil spirits and they submit to you? That's crazy good for me. See, I got two pets, two dogs, tiny dogs. Their names are Hercules and Zeus. <laughs> and I speak to them, and they look at me like if they were Greek gods and do not obey. You know how powerful it will be that I say to Hercules and Zeus, move, pee, or whatever else, and they do? So if I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking, I'm probably not going to use this power well, but man, it's going to be awesome. Can you imagine how beautiful and amazing it would be 
that the Lord will give you the power to heal every disease and affliction. Think about the people you love. Maybe think about the people we have lost. Can you imagine what would it be if God would give you that authority and power and you get to heal every disease and affliction? But before the disciples get super excited, and before they get a big head, if you will, Jesus is going to tell them that that is only part of the job description. That their job description includes more. And this is the part where he's going to make extremely clear what they ought to expect if they are being sent out into the world. Verse 16, it says... I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. And in verse 17, you will be handed over to local consuls and be flogged. You are going to suffer. Now, once again, if you've been part of the church for a while, you probably already heard me saying that whenever the Bible calls Christians and believers and the disciples and everybody else sheep, that's never a compliment. As much as you feel cozy when he says that, as much as you have an image in you, have some picture frame you saw, and Jesus is carrying this beautiful sheep, which is a beautiful picture. You know what I mean? But that is never a compliment. Sheep, for the most part, 99.99% of sheep are needy, inadequate, weak, and not very smart. So this is what Jesus is saying to the disciples before he sends them out, before they get a big head. I am sending you out as sheep with all your limitations. I am sending you out among wolves, meaning that, you are going, um, that you're going out there to love people in word and deed. But if you're not careful, you are going to be somebody's lunch. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And then he adds... And as you go out there, there is a great possibility that they're going to hang you over, meaning betrayed, that would be another translation, by all kinds of people, including people in position of power. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. Because Jesus not only says that when we go out into the world, this is the reality of what we may face or we're going to face. But not only he says that we're going to be probably rejected by people in position of power, but even by family members. He says the same thing in verses 18 through 22. He says, you will be brought before governors and kings. In verse 21, he adds, he says, your brother will betray brother to death. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Verse 22, you will be hated by everyone. Now, at this moment, you got to stop and ask the question, why? Why would Jesus send his disciples and his followers into the world to cause disruption of peace, if you will? Why would Jesus say that we're going to be hated by everyone? By the way, uh, Jesus there is using hyperbole, right? He is... Um, uh, exaggerating a concept so we don't miss the point. It doesn't mean that the entire world will hate you, but it means that there will be people that will hate you. That we should, Jesus doesn't want us to miss the point. He wanted the disciples to understand. He wants you to understand. He wants me to understand that as we go into the world, persecution, rejection, and betrayal is 
and betrayal is not an option. It's part of what it means to be a Christian in this broken world. It's part of what it means to be sent into the world. Now, before we make any kind of assumptions, and why is it that Christians suffer that way, let me make this extremely clear. As we are being sent into the world, this persecution, rejection, and betrayal does not come to us because of something we do or look for. This is what happens when we go into the world proclaiming the message we proclaim and worshiping the God we worship. Listen up. This is not something that we look for. This is something that we ought to expect because of whom we worship and whom we represent. It's not something we do. It's how people react to the things we say. That's part of the reason why in verses 18 and 22, Jesus says this. You will suffer on my account. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings. And verse 22, you will be hated by everyone because of me. I want to make this super, super, super clear, church, so please listen. Christians should not suffer, should not be persecuted, rejected, or betrayed because of arrogance, lack of gentleness, lack of the fruit of the Spirit, confusion between the gospel and politics, confusing the Bible with traditions, choosing preferences over what God says. You should not be persecuted, rejected, or betrayed because you add to the Bible or you subtract to the Bible. If and when a believer suffers, it's because we worship one God and we represent that God. If you suffer and are persecuted because of one of the things that I mentioned before, that's not on God. That's on you. That's on me. Being sent into the world does not give us permission to not represent our God well. If we are going to be persecuted, it's because we choose to worship God. It's because we choose to stand for the truth and it is because Jesus demands loyalty, commitment, surrender, and love for him. Look at what verse 37 says. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Verse 38. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. See, that's one of the problems between modern-day uh, culture and Christianity. When we say that we worship one God and that we owe everything to Jesus and we submit everything to Jesus, that idea is way too aggressive, way too radical, quote-unquote radical, for postmodern progressive people. See, the culture doesn't have an issue with Jesus as long as Jesus is a domesticated Jesus. See, culture doesn't have a problem with Jesus as long as we get to mold Jesus to whatever people want. But listen, you don't have to be a mean person 
to be rejected, all you have to say is that Jesus is the only way and that what Jesus says is the only truth. And you will be labeled, labeled as someone that lacks tolerance. See, I read this week someone that says something that I, I, I think is true. He says, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first lie is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. That's the, that's the lie. And the second lie is that, that to love someone means that you agree with, everyone they, with everything they believe, say, or do. And then he says, both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise conviction to be compassionate. And I would add, when we compromise convictions in the name of, quote, unquote, love, you may be accepted by people, but you're leaving God behind. Let me say it again. This does not excuse misbehavior, lack of gentleness, lack of the fruit of the Spirit. I actually think that the modern-day church has a lot of repenting to do. But it doesn't mean that we have to compromise the truth. Let me put it this way. You don't need to compromise convictions in order to love people. But you have to know that there's a price to pay. Jesus actually says that if they did that to him, that's exactly what we ought to expect in our lifestyle, in our lives. Look at verse 24. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian sent into the world. Now, I'm reading this and I'm thinking... What are the disciples thinking? How is it that they're processing this? Now, we have enough information about the disciples because we have the four Gospels. So if you want to try to guess what they, how they process this, all you have to do is read the four Gospels. And we have enough information about every single one of them that we can almost guess. We can safely assume how is it that these people will react. And I want to argue that there's only two possible responses when people hear this. When the disciples heard this, and when you and I hear this, only two possible responses. One, overconfidence, or two, fear. People hear this, the disciples hear this, you and I hear this, and there could be only two of these possible responses. Confidence or fearfulness. So overconfident disciples, I would say, they would hear this and say, let's go, bring it on, who says fear? You know who I think said that or thought that? Peter, for obvious reasons, and the two sons of thunder, which that tells you something about John and James, uh, James and John, right? But I think that the rest of the disciples... We're on the fearful part. I, I, could almost, I could safely assume that many of the guys, once again, because we see it in the Gospels, we can safely assume that many of us are like, oh, you know, this is cool about power and all, but not sure about this. As you're going to hear in a second, I want to make the argument that that was the majority of the group because Jesus talks in this passage more about fear than anything else. Something tells me that if you're a believer and you're listening to this sermon this morning, 
we also fall in one of those categories. Listen, I'm not going to make it public, but this is family, so let's make it public. But listen, honest. When you hear this, you are sent into the world, and you, might face, and you will face persecution. How many of you will fall in the category of overconfidence? By show of hands? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven? Okay. How many of us will fall in the category of fearful? Fear. Made my point clear. Right? Now, this is super interesting. Jesus knows that that's what goes in our hearts. Jesus is not caught, was not caught by surprise by how the disciples will react. And he's not caught by surprise by, by the way we react. You know why? Because these emotions and feelings are part of what it means to be a human being. For some of us, overconfidence. For some of us, fear. So this leads me to my second point. How is it that we ought to respond? And I love the way Jesus does this. Because every time you see Jesus dealing with these kind of people, he always goes first for the ones that think that don't need anything else. He always goes for the first ones that think, man, I could do it by myself. So to the overconfident, he says this in verse 16. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as a snake and as innocent as doves. So I love the way Jesus does this. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into the text, but I don't think so. Look at what he says to the overconfident disciples, whoever they are. Don't forget that you are a sheep. As you go into the world, do not forget that you are needy, inadequate, weak, and sometimes not very smart. You are going to need me. And then he says, go into the world, be careful, be sensitive, be thoughtful, be prudent, and be wise. Where do I get that from? Those are all the definitions for the word should. Don't just react. Think. Be careful, be sensitive, be thoughtful, be prudent, and be wise. And then he adds and says, be innocent. You know what that means? Be gentle and pure. So it doesn't matter if you are wired as an aggressive person. Jesus says, you're still going to need me. And as you go into the world sent to love in word and deed, you don't have to compromise truth in order to love people. But not loving people well can compromise the truth. You heard that? You don't have to compromise the truth to love people. But if we don't love people well, we are compromising the truth. Because we reflect not just the message of Jesus, and we communicate not just the message of Jesus, but the character of Jesus. There are things that we can build with our mouth that can be completely destroyed by what we do with an attitude and behavior. You know, every time I think of this, I think of all the times when my daughters were growing up, and I wanted them to sit with me and read the Bible. But because they were little and sinful, they would not obey. 
And I would say, come here, we're going to read the Bible. <laughs> How do you put those two things together? We have to worship the Lord. He's good. And gentle and patient. Sit your butt down. I had to repent of that one so many different times. Once again, this is the reason why Jesus says in verse 18, and my account, you represent me. Verse 22, because of me. Verse 24, the student is not above the teacher, not a servant above his master. You do what the Lord teaches you to do. You reflect him in word and deed. Words and behavior and attitude. You don't have to compromise the truth to love people. But not loving people well can compromise the truth. Be sure as snakes and as innocent as doves. That's what Jesus says to the overconfident. So for the six or ten of you that raise your hand, that's for you. For the, for the 95% of the rest of the group in this, the fearful, Jesus is going to say something different. Once again, I think that that was the majority of the group. I actually think that I will be in this category, not so much in the other one. As much as I want to think that I'm in the other group. Jesus knows that fear is a real thing. You know who also knows that fear is a real thing? The world. Jesus knows that we can be controlled by fear. You know who also thinks that you can be controlled by fear? The world. Here, here, I, I want to invite you to think about this for a second. And please don't take it personal. I'm just making an assessment. What happens in our country every four years? We choose a president. I'm old enough. I'm 47. So I'm old enough to remember the good old days. <laughs> the good old days when the candidate came before the nation and would promote himself and say, these are all the reasons why you got to trust me. And after they would do that, then they would do the homework and say, well, you shouldn't trust this other person. You know what, what that has changed, how that has changed in the last 20, 30 years? That has been flipped. Candidates go before the nation and say, let me tell you all the 20,000 reasons why you should be afraid of this person. And then at the end, oh, by the way, maybe you should vote for me. Why do they do that? Remember, I, I said this to you before, vote for whoever you want. But you have to pay attention to that stuff. Because we are controlled by fear. My goodness, if this person wins, what is God going to do? Don't you think that that's the same thing that happens with social media? They're cultivating fear. So we are moved and controlled by fear. Don't you think that that's what happens with the news and TV? Isn't that what CNN does? And isn't that what Fox does? Break, this is how you know. Breaking news. Boom, boom, boom. Flashing lights. Breaking news. And everyone's like, oh my goodness, what happened here? Don't you think that they know that we are controlled by fear? The theologian Michael Horton says something that I find funny and true. This is what he says. 
The boomer generation is afraid of getting older. He says that. Generation X, which is my generation, is afraid of being replaced. Millennials are afraid of not being special. And Generation C is afraid of everything. <laughs> I asked my little one, my little daughter, if that was true, and she says, that is so true. <laughs> he says, fear is such a powerful drug that it can be exploited. We live in a perpetual state of emergency. This is why the disciples were struggling with fear. This is the reason why you and I struggle with fear. And Jesus is going to fix that really quick. And that's why he uses in four different occasions the phrase, do not fear, or it's equivalent. He wants to reverse that. He wants to invite the disciples that instead of reacting out of fear, to not be controlled by fear so they could fulfill their call and mission. And this is what he's going to do. Three things he's going to say using those four phrases. He's going to say first that we shouldn't be controlled by fear because the spirit empowers. And therefore, we are never alone. Verse 19. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what you're going to say or, who, or how to say it. Verse 20. For it, will not be, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of the Father speaking through you. Notice that the only reason how the Spirit can speak through us is if the Spirit is with us. The emphasis is not just that the Spirit gives you the word that you need. The emphasis is that the Spirit that is, listen up, that is the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, Romans chapter 8, is the same Spirit that is in you and with you. The same spirit that says 1 Timothy chapter 1, that is not a spirit of fear or cowardness, but a spirit of power, love, and self-control is the same spirit that is with you in your persecution. So Jesus says, I'm sending you out, and yes, you will be persecuted, but don't fear. Don't be controlled by fear. The spirit that goes with you, the spirit goes with you and will be with you. He is not a spirit of fear or cowardness. He is the spirit of power, love, self-control. You won't be alone. That's true for you and true for me, if you're a believer. He also tells them a second thing, that we shouldn't be uh, controlled by fear because God is the ultimate judge. In verse 26, so do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. And this one I found really, really interesting. Because the text tells you that God will make things right eventually. That he is the ultimate judge. That nothing will be concealed and everything will be revealed. That he will make things right. So the question you got to ask is, how is that helpful to a group of people that is being mistreated and rejected and persecuted? Because if God is the ultimate judge, I don't have to be. Simple as that. I don't have to seek for vengeance. That's his job. I don't have to keep this stuff super personal because God one day will make things right. So if people don't repent, the people that hurt you, if they don't repent, God will deal with them. I don't have to. 
That's how you keep your heart from bitterness and resentment. And Jesus says, don't be afraid of anybody. God is the ultimate judge. You do your thing. Yes, I'm sending you out. And yes, yes, you will be persecuted. And yes, at times, you will experience injustice. But don't fear. You don't have to take justice into your hands. Let him be the ultimate judge. And number three, he says to them, do not be controlled of fear because of who you are to him. Look with me on verse 28. It says, do not be afraid of those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I find it super interesting because on one end, he calls us not to be afraid of anybody. And then he calls us to be afraid of God. How do you reconcile those two things together? For the next few seconds, I want to give you an understanding of what it means to fear God. Because I think that if you understand what it means to fear God, you can deal with persecution. See, some people would say that to fear God is to be afraid of God. Because he's God, he's holy, he's powerful, he's a God of wrath. And I would say... But that is true. I mean, our God is not a wimpy God, you know? He's God. That's what the Bible calls us to tremble before him. That's not the kind of God that you grab and you put in your pocket and you get him out whenever you need him. He's God. Tremble before him. I would say that that God is intimidating. So if you want to learn how to fear God, you got to understand that God is, in fact, intimidating. But the Bible not only describes God like that, but describes God as someone that is beautiful, perfect, gentle, caring, patient, understanding, compassionate, merciful, full of grace, a loving God. So the Bible tells you that God is not only intimidating, but he is beautiful and attractive. At the same time, when you grab those two concepts together, that's what it means to fear God. So quoting here Michael Horton again, he says that when we think about the fear of God, you have to think about having this feeling, if you will, similar to the feeling you get when you look at the Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or the Himalayas or the Amazon forest, in which these things are humongous and magnificent and it makes you feel uncomfortable and certain level of fear. Because those things are intimidating. I mean, if you ever uh, 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 been in an airplane and you could see the ocean, like every time I'm flying over an ocean, man, I get intimidated because I know that I'm this big compared to that. That's intimidating. But those beautiful, magnificent things got something beautiful in them that attracts you to them. And he says, that's what it means to fear God. You find them both intimidating and yet attractive, magnificent, and yet beautiful. I want to make the argument that if we want to learn how to fear God like that, you have to embrace the concept of hell. That's what Jesus said. 
Be afraid of the one that could kill your body and soul and send you to hell. And I want to give you four reasons why hell is the most loving thing God created. Or one of the most loving things God created. See, modern day culture says that it's impossible for us to reconcile a God of love and the concept of hell. And I want to make the argument, just in case you are struggling with that concept, that it, it is impossible for you to embrace the love of God unless you also embrace the concept of hell. Actually, in my own personal journey with the Lord, I went through this season in which I didn't want to preach about hell because I, I thought that it would turn people off. But the more I understood what this is, the more I'm convinced that one of the things that make me see how loving our God is, is the concept of hell. And I want to give you four reasons why. Really quick. Number one, can God truly be a God of love if he sees world evil in this world and does not do anything about it? Can he be loving enough to see injustice, corruption, and abuse and allow that to go unpunished? Would you say that that's love? This is why we call people to repentance. That's why you have to repent. Because God is a holy, loving God. If he does not punish what sin deserves, he stops loving, holy, and loving. Reason number two. Can God be loving if he does not tell you how awful hell is? A place of disintegration, condemnation, as isolation for eternity. See, God is so loving that creates this place and tells you, don't go there. Can God be loving if he doesn't tell you how awful hell is? Argument number three. Is there any way, any other way for us to see how intimidating God is and how loving he is? How magnificent and holy he is. And how attractive he is. See, hell tells you that God really hates sin. And when sin does. But it also tells you with the same concept that that's why Jesus went to the cross. Let me make this argument even more, more clear. This is without the concept of hell, you cannot embrace the cross. You cannot truly understand what it means that Jesus went to the cross to take upon himself the consequence of my sin. To take upon himself the hell I deserved. Isn't God intimidated? He means business. Jesus had to die for me. And at the same time, so beautiful, so loving, so caring that Jesus wanted to die for me. If you don't embrace the concept of hell, you cannot embrace the cross. If you cannot embrace the cross, you don't see how magnificent and intimidating God is. And at the same time, how beautiful and passionate and merciful he is. Actually, 
If you don't embrace the concept of hell, and you cannot embrace, then you cannot embrace the cross. And if you cannot embrace the cross, then you cannot understand these verses right. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even uh, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You know what he tells you there? God cares for the tiniest bird that is worth next to nothing. What makes you think that he doesn't care for you? What makes you think that you're not worthy to him? You know how we know how worthy you are to him? Because Jesus went to the cross and experienced hell on your behalf. And there you see how terrific God is and how merciful he is at the same time. You want to stop fearing people? Fear God that way. And I guarantee you that you will go into the world and you will fulfill your call. Let's pray. Lord, in our time today, in the culture in which we live, it is sometimes hard to reconcile the idea that you are a holy, righteous, and a God of wrath with the concept of your love and mercy and grace. Lord, and the Bible reminds us today that the only way we're going to stop fearing people and struggle and pain, and we're going to stop, stop fearing persecution and be faithful to your call to us is by fearing God well. Please, Lord, help us see and understand how profound it is that our God calls us to tremble before him. And the same guy went to the cross and trembled on our behalf. I pray, Lord, that you allow us to see and believe that Jesus took hell upon himself. So we wouldn't have to. So we would know that the Spirit would always be with us. So we would know that you are the ultimate judge. So we would know that we are worthy to you. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus. And we all say. Continue to consider the message with which we go. Let us also consider the people who we long to hear that message, both in our lives and around the world. Let's stand and sing one more song. Facing a task unfinished, 
that drives us to our knees. A need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. Where other lords beside thee hold their unhindered sway, where forces that defy thee defy thee still today. Jesus Christ the Lord. We bear the torch that's flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours. Fired by the same ambition To thee we yield our powers We go to all the world With kingdom hope unfurled No other name has power to save But Jesus Christ the Lord sustain them, O Spirit, who inspire, Savior, whose law constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice defend us, from lethargy away, forth on thy errand send us to labor for thy sake. Jesus Christ the Lord. We go to all the world with kingdom of earth. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord.
finishing our service, I want to remind you that as a staff of the church, we love to pray for you and we pray, uh, we love to pray with you. So in front of you, you should see the QR code. If you want us to pray for something, please let us know. Use that and let us know. And I guarantee you that someone is going to be praying for you and with you during this week. How about if we receive the, the blessing that the Lord Jesus Christ guarantees for us that he won at the cross. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And the church says, thanks for coming. We love you. Church, you are sent. Thank you.